Sugar, a Silent Killer. Forward from the author. Thank you so much for making the effort to really understand what is going on in your body in terms of your blood glucose and insulin metabolism. I believe that the following concepts are the keys to unlocking a better, healthier future for all of us. A few words about why I wrote this book. Several years ago, I began to notice that I was seeing more and more diabetic and pre-diabetic patients in my practice. No one was talking about the coming epidemic, but it was obvious to me that blood glucose and the ravages of diabetes were to be the defining medical problems of my career. As a young allopathic physician, I treated the problems the way I was taught. Wait until the problem had blossomed into full-blown diabetes, then start the unending litany of medications progressing from oral meds to insulin in the inexorable fight against ever higher blood glucose readings and hemoglobin A1c results. The old paradigm of chasing the blood glucose with higher and higher doses of pharmaceuticals just didn't work. So I began to re-educate myself on the basic physiology of glucose and insulin metabolism. I read and reread books, watched documentaries, and interviewed and really listened to my patients. Finally, after applying basic physiologic principles to my everyday practice, I began to see real results. I realized that when I took the time to explain exactly what was happening physiologically and why my patients were feeling the way they were feeling and suffering the effects of high blood glucose, real, measurable progress became commonplace and even expected. Patients on one or even two or three diabetes medications were able to control their disease without meds. So this book was born. More so than with any other disease process, when it comes to diabetes and prediabetes, knowledge is power. This is my effort to empower you by giving you the knowledge you need to eliminate the blood glucose problem in your life. I hope you find it valuable and as life-changing as it has been for countless patients of mine. Chapter 1. Introduction. So at your most recent doctor visit, you got the news. Your blood glucose, or sugar, is a little high, or maybe a lot high. At that moment, you may have reacted with anxiety, remembering Aunt Sally's terrible diabetes and how she hated her dialysis. Or maybe it was anger, wondering why eating better and exercising doesn't seem to be enough. Or maybe your reaction was indifferent, realizing that this was inevitable given your habits or your family history. I've seen all of these reactions and more in my 20 years of practicing primary care. Unfortunately, I've had to deliver this devastating news countless times, and it seems now that every day I see another patient with newly diagnosed blood glucose problems. The circumstance has become so commonplace that it is no longer surprising when even the most fit and healthy among us has a high blood glucose reading on a yearly lab test. Regardless of your initial reaction, what you do now is of the utmost importance. You have a choice. You can stick your head in the sand and hope that this will go away. It won't. Or you can arm yourself with powerful knowledge that will help you slay this dragon and make blood sugar a non-issue in your life. This book is designed to give you that knowledge. And if you take that knowledge and apply it, chances are you can get your numbers back in line and remove the risk of diabetes and all its consequences from your life. First, let's set the stage. When it comes to blood glucose levels, we need to define what is normal and what is abnormal. Normal fasting blood glucose is generally defined as between 60 and 100 milligrams per deciliter. 
This means that for every deciliter, about 3.4 ounces of blood in your body, there is between 60 and 100 milligrams of glucose. A couple of important points here. First, notice that we said fasting blood glucose. When checking blood glucose, it is vital to know how long it has been since the last meal. After eating or drinking any calories at all, the blood glucose level is supposed to go up. So make sure that you are fasting for at least eight hours before checking a fasting blood glucose level. Secondly, and as you might imagine, there is some difference between a fasting blood glucose of 60 and a fasting blood glucose of 100. Generally speaking, the lower the better, but technically any number within this range can be considered normal. Remember, too, that fasting blood glucose varies, sometimes significantly, from day to day. One morning your blood glucose might be 65, and the next morning, with no obvious difference in your diet or activity level, your number might be 95. This is normal and expected, although not necessarily ideal. The closer to 60 that number is, the better. Now that we have defined normal fasting blood glucose, let's talk a little about abnormal glucose values. The definition of diabetes is, quote, two consecutive fasting blood glucose values greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter, unquote. So if your fasting blood glucose is 150, there's a good chance that you have diabetes. Don't be surprised if you feel fine. The vast majority of people with undiagnosed diabetes have no idea that they are walking around with such a terrible disease. What if, however, your fasting blood glucose number is 116? We have already established that normal fasting blood glucose is between 60 and 100, and a number of 126 or greater means diabetes. But what about between 100 and 126? This is where I so often catch the disease before full-blown diabetes, but still not quite normal. It has been said that you can't be a little bit pregnant, and likewise, you can't have a little bit of diabetes. However, if you fall within this in-between range of 100 to 126, you are at a significantly increased risk of developing diabetes and will very likely go on to develop diabetes if nothing changes. More on that later. This range of fasting blood glucose between 100 and 126 has been called prediabetes, syndrome X, and various other names. The current most accepted description is, quote, impaired fasting glucose, close quotes, or IFG. People in this category have liked relatively high fasting blood glucose numbers for some time, in the upper range of normal, say 80 to 100 and have slowly but inexorably developed insulin resistance, often over a period of years. You have a choice. You could stick your head in the sand and hope this will go away. It won't. Chapter 2. Insulin Resistance What is this insulin resistance? I'm glad you asked. This physiologic state is the fundamental or root cause of many, if not most, of our common chronic illnesses in modern America. In fact, Diabetes or impaired fasting glucose are actually late manifestations of this condition, which often has been in the background for years, quietly causing damage to most of our internal organs, especially the delicate internal lining of our blood vessels called the vascular endothelium. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves going down the road describing all the bad things insulin resistance can do, let's discuss what it is and what causes it. 
We'll use an analogy to make things clearer. Imagine, if you would, that you live downwind of a landfill. Every day the air is filled with the pungent smell of that landfill. After living in the area for a while, you would no longer smell the landfill, correct? This is called resistance. Similarly, when the cells in your body are constantly exposed to elevated insulin levels, they no longer smell the insulin. This essentially is insulin resistance. Now, back to the analogy. Imagine that you took a week's vacation away from the landfill. When you returned home, you would likely smell the landfill again, right? This we will term sensitivity. You are once again sensitive to the smell of the landfill. In much the same way, when your blood glucose levels are consistently at the upper range of normal, your pancreas must continuously create and secrete insulin. In fact, it is this constant environment of excess insulin that is the real problem. Even though we measure and worry about blood glucose levels, not insulin levels. We'll get back to that in a bit, but for now, just like losing our smell when we live downwind of a landfill, when the cells of our body are subjected to an uninterrupted supply of insulin, we lose our ability to recognize and use that insulin. In essence, when you lose your sensitivity due to constant exposure or overexposure, whether it be to the smell of a landfill, or chronically, even mildly elevated blood glucose levels, you become resistant. The mechanisms of the two examples are slightly different, but the end result is analogous. This is probably a good thing when we face persistent exposure to a noxious stimulus, such as a pungent smell. But when it comes to blood glucose and insulin, it is very much the opposite. There is good news, however. Just like taking a week's vacation reestablishes the sensitivity of our smell receptors, lowering your blood glucose and, more importantly, your blood insulin levels, even briefly, reestablishes sensitivity to insulin. You will be faced with either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. The good news is that you get to choose which pain you have. Chapter 3. Insulin and the Pancreas As promised, let's talk about your pancreas and the role it plays in your health. As you may know, the pancreas is a gelatinous organ that sits just below your sternum, in front of your stomach. It is involved in many aspects of digestion, but for our purposes, we will focus on its most important function, the digestion of sugars and carbohydrates. By the way, for the remainder of our discussion, we can use the terms sugar, glucose, and carbohydrate interchangeably. Again, let's start with the normal state of things before we get to what so often goes awry. Specific cells within the pancreas, called beta cells, a type of islet cell inside the pancreas, produce the hormone we call insulin. When we consume food or drinks that contain carbohydrates, or fake carbohydrates, i.e. artificial sweeteners, the sugars enter our blood and cause the concentration or level of glucose in our blood to go up. That elevated blood glucose signals the pancreas to produce and secrete insulin. Insulin then binds or attaches to the various glucose molecules and helps to usher the glucose into our cells. Glucose can't get into our cells on its own. It requires insulin to, quote, open the door of the cell and allow it inside. This is true for every cell of the body. In a muscle cell, glucose provides energy for movement. In a brain cell, glucose provides energy for thinking. In a fat cell, 
or adipocyte, glucose is stored as, wait for it, fat. The beta cells of the pancreas are designed such that they work best when they are stimulated to produce insulin, turned on, and then allowed to turn off or rest multiple times a day. When the pancreas turns off, the flow of insulin is stopped, and the level of insulin in our blood returns to its normal, very low baseline. As long as the cycle continues where the pancreas is allowed to turn on when needed, then turn off when not needed, we can go on making and secreting insulin multiple times a day for a hundred years or more. Unfortunately, this cycle has been deranged by the modern Western diet and lifestyle. Foods such as artificial sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup, processed and concentrated foods simply don't allow the pancreas to turn off long enough for insulin levels to return to their normal low baseline. Moreover, abdominal obesity and visceral fat play a role in insulin resistance, as does inadequate exercise, hormones in the food that we eat, poor sleep, and undoubtedly other factors. So back to our analogy, our cells are constantly surrounded by insulin, or the pungent smell of the landfill, and never get to take a vacation. As such, they don't recognize the insulin as well and begin to become resistant to insulin and its effects. This is a biochemical turning point in our body's internal environment that can have devastating effects if allowed to continue. That's because the way our pancreas reacts to this early resistance to insulin is actually to produce more insulin in an effort to overcome the resistance. Guess what comes next? More resistance, of course. An arms race ensues as our pancreas works feverishly to spit out more and more insulin while our cells become more and more resistant to insulin. Chapter 4. The Effects of Hyperinsulinemia As we mentioned earlier, what we measure is the level of glucose in our blood, but just as important is the level of insulin. Insulin, however, is difficult to measure at home. There is no reliable finger stick device that measures blood insulin, and glucose serves as a good surrogate indicator most of the time. If your blood glucose level is high, you can bet that your blood insulin level is just as elevated. That is, of course, unless your pancreas has simply worn out from the constant demands placed on it after many years of high glucose levels. When that happens, unfortunately, all efforts at rehabilitating the pancreas are in vain and the whole thing becomes a salvage operation, requiring daily insulin injections as a last-ditch effort to keep the blood glucose levels down. The effects of high blood insulin levels, hyperinsulinemia, are varied, but they all contribute to overall poorer health. Abdominal obesity is directly linked to high insulin levels. Interestingly, obesity both causes and is caused by high insulin levels. So another vicious cycle ensues when hyperinsulinemia leads to obesity, thereby causing higher insulin levels, and so on. Hyperinsulinemia is also a causative factor in the development of high blood pressure. High insulin levels cause increased sodium retention in the renal tubules, the part of the kidneys that control electrolytes in the blood. This increased sodium often causes blood pressure levels to elevate. In addition, High blood insulin levels resulting from insulin resistance have been shown to cause high triglyceride levels. Triglycerides are a type of fat or lipid found in your blood. 
When you eat, your body converts any glucose that it can't use right away into triglycerides. These triglycerides are then stored in fat cells, so it's no wonder high insulin levels cause increased abdominal fat. Symptoms of high insulin levels include brain fog, muscle weakness, blurred vision, fatigue, headaches, and difficulty concentrating. The most devastating consequence of hyperinsulinemia, however, is damage to the vascular endothelium, which eventually results in heart attacks and strokes. The vascular endothelium is the delicate inner lining of each and every artery in your body. Think of a water hose with a green outer layer and a black inner layer. That black inner layer is analogous to the vascular endothelium. In your arteries, this thin, single-cell-thick layer is responsible for protecting your blood vessels against the damage that can result from all the chemicals and particles that are dissolved in your blood. Imagine particles of sand suspended in a bucket of water. Now imagine that we pumped that water through the garden hose at a relatively high pressure, about 100 millimeters of mercury pressure to be more precise. Now imagine that we did that for 50 years. Do you think there would be any damage to the inner lining of the water hose? Of course there would be. That is exactly the kind of damage that insulin and other things produce inside your blood vessels. Blood vessels, which are much more delicate than a water hose, thankfully have a built-in repair mechanism. When an insulin molecule or glucose molecule or dissolved tar from cigarettes, etc., scratches the vascular endothelium, chemical signals are released and the repair crew comes in to fix the damage. This repair crew is made up of monocytes, a type of white blood cell, platelets, several proteins including collagen and elastin, and LDL cholesterol, as well as a whole host of other chemicals and proteins associated with inflammation. In its simplest terms, you can think of LDL cholesterol as a band-aid that acts like a patch to cover the damage caused by insulin while the vascular endothelium heals. As long as that healing takes place relatively quickly, the LDL cholesterol band-aid is removed by good HDL cholesterol particles, and the now healed area of the vascular endothelium inside the blood vessel goes on to function normally. If, however, the level of insulin and other damaging factors in the blood remains high, another injury can occur in the same area before the LDL band-aid can be removed. What happens then? Well, another Band-Aid is placed, of course. Now, if these Band-Aids start to stack up on top of one another, you can imagine the result, a cholesterol plaque. So now we've seen how high blood glucose levels and more importantly, high blood insulin levels lead to a state of insulin resistance and what that means. We have seen the terrible consequences of this insulin resistance and how it ultimately causes us to have abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, lipid or cholesterol problems, and eventually heart attacks and strokes. This syndrome, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high blood cholesterol, and obesity, is so common that it has a name, metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome, which fundamentally is nothing more than the natural consequence of insulin resistance, is the single most common and preventable cause of health problems in our world today. If you have read this far, you will be interested to know that it is completely reversible, at least in its early stages. Did you catch that? The single most common cause of disease in the United States today is completely reversible. 
That's because insulin resistance, again in its early stages, is reversible. Remember our landfill analogy? If you do, you will remember that we mentioned the fact that even after we become smell-resistant to the landfill, if we were to take a week's vacation, we would reestablish our smell sensitivity and be able to smell the landfill perfectly well when we returned. That is because our smell receptors for that landfill smell would reestablish themselves on the surface of the sensory nerve cells in our nose and be ready to go back into action when we returned home from our vacation. In just the same way, the receptors that are responsible for smelling or recognizing the combined insulin glucose molecules in our blood will reestablish themselves on the surface of every cell in our body if we could just take a vacation from insulin. Luckily, it doesn't require a solid week without insulin to reestablish our insulin sensitivity. It does, however, require that we lower our blood insulin levels dramatically and consistently. Did you catch that? The single most common cause of disease in the United States today is completely reversible. Chapter 5, Biochemical Individuality. We will get into just how to do that, but I'd like to take a minute and discuss biochemical individuality. Up to this point, we have discussed several significant concepts relating to insulin and glucose metabolism. Each of these concepts are real and true in regards to the physiology of all human beings. For instance, we all metabolize glucose in much the same way, and we are all subject to the properties of sensitivity and resistance. Going forward, however, we must address the fact that we are all slightly different. As unique individuals, each one of us will experience things like resistance and sensitivity to different degrees. In the same way, the concepts of how to reverse resistance and reestablish sensitivity will have to be tailored to each individual. If your unique pancreas has been super efficient in terms of controlling your blood sugar, then you may be able to reverse your insulin resistance with minimal effort. If, on the other hand, your insulin levels have been high for a long time and you've been teetering on the edge of diabetes for months or even years, then it may take a sustained effort for you to reestablish your insulin sensitivity. Make sense? Chapter 6. Fixing the Problem For decades, researchers, many if not most of them employed by the pharmaceutical industry, have been working on the problem of correcting insulin resistance. Unfortunately, they have done so from the angle of a new chemical or pill that would magically undo the years of damage we have done to our pancreas and insulin metabolism. If I have learned anything in my 25 years of medical practice, it is that there is no magic bullet. The fact that our pancreas has been doing exactly what it was designed to do, and our peripheral cells and receptors have been doing exactly what they were designed to do since the day we were born, and in fact even before. The issue here is not that human physiology has changed but that the fuel with which we have been feeding the machine has changed. Think of it this way. If you have a diesel engine truck and you put regular gasoline into it, it will run for a while. Eventually, however, the engine will stop because the engine is designed to run on a different type of fuel. In the same way, the human engine will run on the wrong fuel for a while. Just like the diesel engine with gasoline in it, however, the human engine will eventually grind to a halt if we continually feed it with the wrong fuel. Most pharmaceuticals, in a very real way, will allow the engine to continue to limp along, but it will never run at its best as long as we continue to use gasoline in an engine designed for diesel fuel. 
a big part of the problem is that we have been conditioned to believe that we are using the right kind of fuel. We have all been deceived into believing the marketing that has told us the whole grain and low-fat foods are good for us. Without getting into politics too much, suffice it to say that the FDA and other government watchdogs are subject to the same lobbyists as Congress is, and that big food industry is as powerful a lobby as there is in this country. 100 years ago, not so long ago in the big scheme of things, the average American consumed the equivalent of five pounds of sugar annually. Today, that number is over 150 pounds. Read that last sentence again. That is not a typo. Today, the average American consumes 30 times the amount of sugar that our great-grandparents did. No wonder our pancreases are worn out. So how can you reverse this cycle of insulin resistance and defective glucose metabolism? I'm sure you've caught on by now. You must drastically decrease the amount of sugar in your diet. How drastically depends on how far gone your pancreas is and how serious you are about finally correcting the problem. I'm not talking about a fad diet or a special pill. I'm talking about immediately and permanently changing what you put in your mouth. You must become ruthlessly cognizant of every carbohydrate that you eat. What I mean is, at the very least, never ever eat sugars or carbohydrates ignorantly. Be hyper aware of every gram of carbohydrate that you eat or drink. Read labels and count carbs. Realize that four grams of carbs is roughly equivalent to one whole teaspoon of sugar. Before trying to limit your sugar or carbohydrates, just do an experiment. For two or three days, count every single carbohydrate that goes into your body. Take note of how many carbohydrates you normally eat and then commit to cutting that number down to one half or one third of its current value. In the ebook format of this audiobook, there is a graphic or a chart depicting the typical American diet broken down by meal along with the average number of carbohydrates in one serving of each food. You can find that graphic at www.jfranksmd.com resources. The graphic shows that it doesn't take a steady diet of sodas and donuts all day long to really rack up the carbohydrate count. Remember that we said earlier, four grams of carbohydrates is equivalent to one teaspoon of table sugar. Applied to the example, that is the equivalent of simply pouring 100 teaspoons of sugar down your throat daily. Let that sink in for a moment and you'll realize that it is not at all surprising that fully one half of all Americans are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. When we substitute some lower carbohydrate alternatives in for some of the higher carb foods, we can markedly decrease the total daily carb count. You don't have to starve yourself or even really deprive yourself to dramatically lower your intake of carbohydrates and reverse insulin resistance and prediabetes. This is not a diet book. There are thousands of those out there and you don't need to buy any of them. You simply need the fundamental knowledge of what carbs are and how to reduce them in your diet. There are some good resources for counting carbohydrates on the internet. Start with a Google search for how many carbs are in blank. If you have a smartphone, then I recommend an app called Carb Manager. The free version works just fine. MyFitnessPal is another app that has a carb counting function. We spoke earlier about the concept of biochemical individuality. In the example earlier, I cited a diet of 94 grams of carbohydrates daily as being healthy. For some of us, 94 grams of carbohydrates may still be too much. For others, 
150 grams or even 200 grams of carbohydrates might be an acceptable number. The only way to know how many carbs are right for you is to quantify for yourself. Count your carbohydrates. Be consistent for several days or weeks. Then check your blood glucose numbers. Remember, fasting for a few days. If your numbers are getting better, then you are doing it right. If not, you will need to cut the carbs even more. There is one particular food, if you want to call it that, I personally call it poison, that we need to discuss. You'll notice in the chart that I referenced, I substituted unsweetened tea for Coca-Cola. If you have high blood glucose and you drink soft drinks of any kind, it is imperative that you break that habit immediately. Arguably the single biggest contributor to the obesity and diabetes epidemic in the Western world, soft drinks are a complete no-no if you are already struggling with your blood sugar. Diet drinks are no better, and in some ways actually worse, than regular soft drinks. There is an incredible amount of evidence that there are literally zero redeeming qualities about these drinks. And if you use them, I'd say getting off of them is your number one priority. Other than being aware of your carbs and kicking the soda pop habit, there are really very few hard and fast rules here. This is one of those ideas that demonstrates the difference between the terms simple and easy. It is quite simple to understand each of the concepts outlined here. It is by no means easy, however, to put them into practice. When we eat sugar, our bodies receive a quick burst of easily digestible energy, and we almost immediately crave more. Left unchecked, most of us will gradually eat more and more sugar as time goes on, and as we've seen, this leads to insulin resistance. Breaking this cycle requires thought and effort. It is worth the effort, though, in order to avoid all the devastating effects of insulin resistance and the diabetes that inevitably follows. So on the next page, let's break this down into an actionable, step-by-step plan for reversing insulin resistance and avoiding diabetes altogether. As stated earlier, this is not a diet book. Steps that, taken in the right order, can reinforce the ideas you've learned here and really cement these concepts into your own personal lifestyle. Here are those steps. Step one, become ruthlessly cognizant of the carbohydrates that you are eating right now. Invest in a carb counting app. Measure and document your daily carbs for a few days, up to a week. And finally, be honest with yourself about how many carbs you are actually eating. Step two, commit to decreasing those carbohydrates significantly. Finding lower carbohydrate alternatives to what you typically eat is not complicated. Do your research, try new things, and make a concerted effort to really slash your total carb intake. Start by cutting your previous carb totals by about 50%. But remember that we are all individuals, and so your cuts may have to be even more drastic. Step three, continue to monitor. As you work the plan, you will notice your daily fasting blood glucose levels coming down. Over a period of time, weeks to months, you will be able to stop checking your sugar daily and begin to just spot check to make sure you are staying in line. I recommend spot checking once or twice weekly indefinitely in order to ensure that excess carbohydrates don't creep back into your diet. So there you have it, a broad overview of why your blood sugar has gone up and what you can do about it. I hope you have learned something from the preceding pages. Moreover, I hope that I've convinced you that today's typical American diet is literally killing us. You don't have to eat the way you've always eaten, 
In fact, when you think about it, doing what you have always done is exactly what has put you here in the first place. If you'd like to be someplace else in terms of your health, you're going to have to create some new habits. It's not as difficult as you might imagine. Start small and try to eat a little bit cleaner today than you did yesterday. Begin by becoming ruthlessly cognizant of each and every carbohydrate you put in your mouth. Then commit to cutting those carbs down to a fraction of what your body is accustomed to. Keep doing that, and in no time you will reverse your insulin resistance and prevent diabetes from sealing the healthy future that you deserve. There's an old adage in business, if you want to change something, you must measure that thing. Likewise, in physiology, if you want to change your blood glucose, then you must measure. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Jay Franks. I've practiced internal medicine for over 20 years. I've worked in the trenches in the fight against metabolic disease, treating thousands of patients with diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and insulin resistance. I have real-world experience combined with a broad knowledge of both mainstream and complementary medical principles, as well as an in-depth understanding of human physiology and behavior. I believe that we all have the ability to improve our lives through a better understanding of the fundamental biological principles governing our bodies. I've dedicated my life to teaching these principles in a way that is clear, concise, and engaging. If you'd like more information on exactly what you should and should not eat, and other new and emerging information about this epidemic, as well as reminders of old wisdom about the problem, then please subscribe to my website, jfranksmd.com, and check it regularly. We will explore and unravel the problems of nutrition and metabolism and change your life for the better one good decision at a time.